but yet that diversity is the flower that emerges from those roots that are planted. And as we know, a, a rose and a daffodil or a tulip, uh, hydranium all have their beauty within them, even though they look different. Um, at the at the root of them is that seed that, when planted and, and nourished, uh, allows those plants to blossom in meaningful ways. Um, and that's in many ways how we should be thinking about the Muslim world is about the blossoms um, and about what each brings to our joy, our life, our happiness. Welcome to Candid Insights. I'm your host, Sahil Badruddin, and today we have with us Rizwan Mawani, educator, writer, and researcher. He has advised policymakers and think tanks on issues of religious literacy and diversity. Rizwan, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Sahil. I want to start by talking about your book, uh, Beyond the Mosque. Uh, it's a book about diverse spaces of Muslim worship. In your book, you speak about different cultures and geographies and interpretations of Islam. Uh, you mention spaces of worship such as the Imam Baras, the Husaniyas, the Kanakas, Zawiyas, and the Jamaat Kana, which serve diverse community and serve as their sites of worship. Could you speak more about how diversity is a strength in Islam? I think, first of all, we need to recognize that there is a great amount of diversity amongst Muslim communities and individuals. Um, you know, I, I tend, I, I see today in the public eye, um, much more talk about how Islam is homogenized, or we have this image that, um, we, and it happens with all religious communities, that when we talk about Muslim, or we talk about Christian, or we talk about Hindu or Sikh or, or Jew, um, for most of us, we tend to have a very sort of static, typified, uh, image of what that means. And when we look at any religious tradition, uh, Islam included, um, you know, we find uh, a sense of diversity informed by the various cultures that Muslims belong to, the various historical currents that uh, and contexts um, that Muslims find themselves in. Um, and this lends itself to a, a wide range of diversity. And this diversity isn't something that's new or that emerges late within the Muslim experience, but it's something that we see very, very early on. Um, and as Islam moves uh, and as a religion expands and captures the hearts and minds of more and more people around the globe or, you know, in its early years and subsequent years, um, you know, we tend to see the religious ideas coming into conversation with the cultures that people belong to. Um, and so this is the first thing that I think we need to recognize before we even talk about this idea of diversity as a, as, a, as, a, as a strength within a religious tradition. Because I think there is a, a common sense that if everything is uniform, maybe that's the strength because there's no fighting, there's no kind of um, conflict um, within a community. But in fact, uh, and we see this even in the corporate world, um, you know, there is a, a tendency to veer towards this sense of difference as being something that strengthens a group of people because you have diverse viewpoints, diverse ways of thinking about the world, um, and as a result, diverse experiences that that you know you you bear. Um, I think when it comes to religion, however, people think that there is this universal message that shouldn't be moved away from. Uh, and I think that's where the tension often lies within religion and religious communities, that uniformity should actually be something that is moved, aimed towards. And you have 
um, elements within every religious community who hold that viewpoint. Um, but I think when it comes to when it comes to looking at diversity, we see that diversity brings with it various ways of understanding and looking at that world. And you know, people live in different contexts; they bring different experiences with them, and so those different viewpoints allow them um, to see their landscapes, their worlds, in different sorts of ways. The challenge of course comes uh, in the modern period where you have communities from different parts of the world with different experiences coming together in conversation and if they don't necessarily have the tools or the abilities to to speak with each other understand each other's viewpoints you can see conflict arise and you see that arise in various parts of the world where there are homogenizing forces trying to present one viewpoint uh, to the detriment of other other viewpoints but i think there is a richness that comes from diversity um, and that richness presents itself in a whole variety of, variety of ways. And that richness allows communities who live in various environments to see the world in different and unique ways and to bring that on, to bear on the various challenges we see in our world around us. And so, um, you know, I've always thought of diversity as strength growing up within a community that is very diverse. Um, but as I traveled around the world and worked with Muslim communities around the world, um, I also saw that diversity manifests itself in really unique ways um, and brought together by various individuals and communities. I, I often think that, you know, as you mentioned, diversity is a strength and that, you know, pluralism becomes the positive engagement with the diversity. Do you think that forces that tend to, as you mentioned, homogenize, should we, should we actively, in your opinion, try to resist them? So, you know, I, I think there are, there are a number of ways to think about it. So there, those homogenizing, homogenizing forces take different forms. So there are political forces, there are economic forces, there are social forces. Um, each have their own agendas in certain ways of trying to flatten or minimize or, or even recognize that sense of diversity. And I think, uh, you know, as you point out, this value that we often refer to as pluralism, recognizing and thinking about diversity in positive ways um, is something that's important because I think when you come, when it comes to homogenizing forces, the challenge is, is that you risk, um, you know, losing out on things. And it's funny when it comes out of the religious domain, we don't, we don't even think of it as a a positive thing um, when we think about extinction and losing species or we you know when we think about um, the ability or, or cultures and languages being lost because you don't have any speakers of those languages anymore we see that as tragedies to our world because with each of those things come uh, comes a loss uh, and when it comes to religious communities when you homogenize you also lose you lose ways of engaging with the world of seeing the world of thinking about the world in different ways but yet, um, there are certain elements of religious communities that see homogenization as God-given. Um, there are certain ways to be religious. There are certain ways to be Muslim. Um, and any other, any other way that challenges that is seen as problematic uh, or different. Um, but I think that ability to recognize that homogenization is not necessarily positive, that there is loss that comes with it, um, that in being or thinking about religion in one way, you actually uh, espouse a whole series of values that are negative. You know, we see what's happening, for example, in certain parts of the world where um, political currents of Islam only allow one way to be Muslim. And we see the detriments it has on human rights. We see the detriments it has on um, on minority rights. Uh, and those are problematic to a large extent because it doesn't allow the fullness uh, uh, and 
of ways to express oneself of being Muslim to uh, exemplify themselves. And so, yes, I think uh, to one extent, we need to be careful about um, how we understand what these forces do. Um, but the education around that is, is problematic and it's, it's difficult for many of us because I think for many people, um, recognizing diversity is one thing, but recognizing your own way of practicing as the most legitimate way of practicing the faith tends to be a tendency we many of us lean towards. And we see that even within communities. It's not just diversity amongst communities, but within religious communities, there are different ways to be um, religious. There are different ways to, ex to express your faith. Um, and even within communities, there are challenges that exist. And so that diversity and that engagement um, that we may call pluralism is not just about recognizing diversity outside, but it's also recognizing diversity within our various communities and making sure that we put, put things in place, first of all, to, to recognize that diversity and then to find ways to accept that diversity in meaningful ways. Mm -hmm. And that I think it becomes even within communities, you, you know, people often don't realize the diversity of thought, right? Even intellectual. Yeah. Yeah, whether it's intellectual thought, whether it's practice, whether it's um, family traditions, whether it's ways of engaging or seeing the world, all of those things exist within communities as well, as well as without them. And, you know, I think one of the biggest things that gets confused, if you look at the Muslim population from, you know, Senegal to China to Iran and India, right, it's, it's diverse, you know, in its cultural outlook. But I think one thing people don't realize is part of being a human being and part of having a lived tradition, right? Part of having a living tradition, a lived faith, is that you're not gonna, by definition, have homogenization. What are your thoughts on that? You within, if you recognize that traditions are lived, uh, you know, you will always have this tension um, that exists between um, this sense of of text or scripture, whatever that is. So in the context of Muslims, we can think about the Quran. And you have this, this text that we've received that's, that's static in the sense of there are words on paper uh, that people receive. But the way you, you read that text, the way you engage with that, the way you apply it in your life is very, very different. And this, this happens all the time, is that that context would often necessitate a way of thinking about what something means. You know, there's a, an aphorism that's applied to many, many different cultures and communities that I, I like that says you can never step in the same river twice. Um, and uh, I, you know, I think that's a very apt aphorism because for me, that river is constantly changing. It's moving, it's dynamic, but you yourself as an individual are always changing. And so that encounter between you and the river will never be the same twice, even if it's the same person and the same river. Um, you know, we are constantly in a state of movement and flux, um, psychologically, socially, uh, culturally. Um, and so that encounter is always unique. Um, and so, you know, if, if, that, if the Quran as a thought experiment was revealed in a different place in a different time to a different, through a different individual, um, that engagement of what Islam looks like may, be, may have been different in certain respects. Um, the, in, in the case of Islam, the, prophet, um, the prophet's encounter with the revelation um, and choose, you know, sort of encourages him to engage with the world in a very particular kind of way. But there is a conversation that's happening as well because the prophet sees things in his life. Um, and, you know, that engagement with revelation emerges because of that particular encounter. Uh, it is not simply unidirectional. 
um, there is something that's much more dynamic happening. And the way we engage with religion in many ways is also bi-directional or multi-directional. Um, what we receive, how we understand it, how we internalize it, and how we articulate and express it, it also changes from individual to individual. Let's switch to spatial diversity. I know in your book, you talk about architectural distinctions and you know significance differences in, in spaces of worship and how that impacts you know, the ambiance of the environment and impacts the richness of spirituality. Here I'm talking about, you know, often I'm also talking about places that use light in interesting ways and geometry in interesting ways. Could you speak about how that also plays into diversity and pluralism in the Muslim world? Yeah, so I think, you know, we've seen um, in many places, of course, spaces of worship around the world, both historical and contemporary, um, you know, the, the spaces themselves do multiple things. So on one hand, they've, they simply become a site for worship. Um, and so you could have a home, uh, you know, uh, I've seen, ga- you know, petrol gas stations uh, act as sites of worship, uh, you know, and those don't necessarily have to be intricate by any means. They're functional. They provide a space in which Muslims can perform their devotions. Um, you then have these beautiful, you know, spaces that are often, patronized by individuals or funded by individuals. Um, And, you know, oftentimes those are architecturally rich in the sense uh, that they have motifs. They're able to translate the values of a religious community um, to in an architectural form. Um, And so, you know, light uh, is a very important concept within many religious traditions, but Islam in particular, and you have, of course, the very firm, very famous um, verse in the Quran is extolling uh, the life and its similitude to, to God is describing itself in those forms. And so light becomes a very, very interesting metaphor in many ways. And so in many religious spaces um, within the Muslim world, you have this interplay of light and shadow. You have this interplay, uh, you have these beautiful stained glass windows that filter light and color light as it comes into a space. Uh, You have dark spaces that have pinholes of light, uh, which then become again, metaphors for something um, as well. So light, you know, light in itself is something that is hard to describe. It's not something you see unless uh, it is shown to you in some kind of way. It's it's always sort of, it makes itself manifest through different forms. Um, And we see it, whether it's through sunlight or through candlelight, uh, or through artificial light. Um, and so spaces of worship uh, oftentimes use light in interesting ways, sometimes consciously, sometimes unconsciously, um, to express themselves uh, and to talk about the larger values of Islam, and in many ways to represent or be similitudes of the divine entering those spaces as well. Um, and we see that in various spaces around the world. For example, in Turkish spaces of worship, um, stained glass is very common. Um, and here you have the stained glass filtered in many ways that cascades light in, in, into these spaces. Um, you know, uh, in other places, you have this play of shadow uh, and light that come in through various uh, architectural forms. And in other places you have that are very completely dark and you only have accidental Um, beams of light coming through, but light communicates to us, I think, in very, very interesting ways. Um, And it's a metaphor in many ways, even for the way we think about, well, the way in which Muslims even think about what Islam brings to uh, the world community when it enters. It brings people from a a space of darkness to a space of light. We talk about our own individual journeys and our movement through life 
as coming from, um, you know, places of darkness or places of um, uh, ignorance or places of uh, two movements where we feel enlightened or we feel that we have access to divine providence within our lives. And so light becomes an important element in that, in that sense as well. Then there's also the aspect of ritual diversity, right? We see that rituals have evolved over time and context and environments. Could you speak a little bit about the diversity of practices we see in the Muslim world today? Yeah, so, you know, I think for most of us, we think when we think about ritual practice, many of us think about the Salah or the Namaz, it's called in certain parts of the world. Um, this canonical prayer that Muslims um, devote themselves to. Um, but it, when I began to travel around the world, it was very clear to me that while that was an important ritual for many Muslim communities and the de facto ritual for, for the majority, there were other either parallel or uh, additional rituals that Muslim communities practiced. Um, and some of these were private rituals, some of these happened in congregational settings. But I think to think of the Salat and the Namaz as the only ritual amongst Muslims is problematic. Um, you know, amongst Shia communities, you have additional prayers that are recited uh, on particular evenings um, that extol um, the values and virtues of the imams that are an important part of their history. Um, you see this amongst groups that even don't identify themselves as Sunni or Shia, amongst groups like the Alevis, the Zikris, um, and so forth, uh, in which you have entirely different canons of ritual that exist. Um, and so I think to think about the Salah or the Namaz as the only rituals in the Muslim world is, 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 is challenging and it belies what we actually see on the ground. Um, different communities for different reasons have developed their own ritual practices, some to further extol uh, and to augment the rituals that become part of their communities and so that they too can participate more broadly in additional practices and bring themselves closer to the divine. In other cases, you have communities who have been um, prevented from practicing in congregation because they have historically been seen as minority communities um, or have historically been persecuted. And so those communities have had by necessity initially developed, had to develop a parallel set of rituals to their own practices. The Druze are a community in case in point where you see this um, and, you know, you see communities and this is another interesting relationship. You have communities that have been pushed to the margins or who have, you know, found themselves in mountain areas, for example, because they've been pushed away from urban environments because they've been persecuted. Um, you know, we'll often have different sets of rituals or different practices that exist or where they will have the Salat coexist with, uh, you know, additional rituals, or in some cases may even have ranges of rituals that are practiced by sub-community members uh, as well. Um, and so I think this is an important thing to recognize as, as we look around the Muslim world. And, you know, I, I say in the book, and I've, I've said on other occasions that a mosque is not just a mosque in the sense of when I go to a mosque in Indonesia and I go to a mosque, let's say in Senegal, um, sure, you'll see, of course, commonalities in ritual practice, but you'll also see significant differences. Um, and those differences uh, oftentimes will have to do with obviously the community they belong to, uh, maybe the madhab or form of legal practice they subscribe to, um, but it also has to do with the environment um, and the history of those communities as well. Um, and so, you know, we don't talk necessarily about um, dhikr or zikr as being an essential part of Muslim practice, but as we travel the Muslim world, whether you belong to a mystical community or not, the repetition of God's name is something that's reasonably common amongst Muslim communities around the world. 
Um, and one doesn't always have to subscribe to uh, a mystical or a Sufi temperament to be able to participate or see that as part of your practice. Um, and so I think it's important to recognize that diversity does exist uh, in different sorts of ways, ritually, spatially, uh, as well as in other forms. And I think there's a more complicated picture that you know often comes into play is that when people are geographically displaced or dispersed, they will find themselves in different environments, perhaps foreign environments, and often they're unable to practice their rituals or their traditions openly. And even if they're able to practice them openly, they find themselves practicing them in a setting where people may not fully understand their significance. I assume uh, changes take place over time and slowly things get adopted into a new environment. But that, that change and that adop adaptation is quite interesting to me. Could you speak a bit more about, you know, particular circumstances where you've seen this or just in general? Yeah, so that we can let, let's even talk about gender. So I can think of a case, if we look at the Indian subcontinent today, and let's say, you know, uh, India in particular, you know, when I traveled um, to many parts of India, um, most of the mosques that I visited were spaces primarily um, visited by men. Women tended to pray in the home. But when I looked at many of the historical buildings within parts of India, they had areas called zananas, which were um, areas specifically devoted for women worship, female worshipers. Um, so the architecture of those buildings um, belies the current practice uh, that mosques are public spaces which men can participate in, while women participate in private spaces such as the home in their devotions and engagement. But the architecture tells me a very different story. It tells me that when these mosques were thought of and conceived, they were thought of conceived with female worshippers in mind. And interestingly, uh, you know, as if you hear the stories of many migrants to, let's say, North America and Europe, where most mosques have spaces for men and women, they now, women in, in the contemporary landscape are able to attend mosques and practice their faith openly. And so you have this interesting cascading of the intent of a building having one particular purpose in mind, the social practice of, a, of an environment of a community not allowing that practice to take place. And then migrants moving from one community to another country in this case, and then being allowed to practice in ways that they weren't allowed to practice in their home environments. And so, you know, over three different kind of historical periods, um, two in the same geography, one in a different geography, you have different kinds of social practices taking place. The opposite case is the, the kind of case that you had mentioned, where a person um, may not necessarily be able to practice their faith openly in that same way. And we can talk about, let's say, for example, Germany, where you have uh, a large number of Alevi communities. Now, in, in, in Germany, Alevis are allowed to practice their faith openly um, in Muslim spaces known as Jemavis. Now, in Turkey, where Alevis are persecuted to some extent, uh, where Sunni Islam is the predominant form, um, people who return back to Turkey have certain restrictions on the practice of their faith, which they don't have in Germany. Alevis and Jemavis are recognized um, by the country as uh, legitimate Muslim spaces of worship, while in Turkey, they have uh, a different sort of status. Um, they are seen oftentimes as cultural centers um, and so forth. And so you have all of these kinds of things taking place in different environments where as people move, the context changes. The way in which a government or an environment sees a particular kind of practice will be different from place to place. 
the other thing that's interesting is as, as migrants move in established communities, um, so, you know, if we think of the Smiley communities, for example, settling in the U.S. and elsewhere, um, depending on where they came from in the earliest uh, decades of their settlement, they brought those practices and institutions with them. And so the Jamaat kind of as they conceived them in those places, maybe not architecturally, but spatially in terms of what it constituted, the rituals that were practiced became part and parcel of the environment in which people practice their faith. And that's why, um, you know, you saw in the early periods of time, Ismaili cities or cities in which Ismailis had settled from, let's say, Bangladesh may have had slightly different variants and rituals than people who may have settled from the countries of East Africa or the countries of in, or the other countries of the subcontinent, like India and Pakistan. Um, and so, of course, over time, things begin to um, change a little bit and there seems to be you know there is a flattening of some of these things but people will often bring what's familiar with them to themselves you know similarly when uh continuing with the Ismaili community moves from India subcontinent to East Africa they bring certain rituals with them and so in East Africa certain rituals are practiced in India rituals begin to change um, but yet what happens in East Africa harkens back to an older an older period of time of ritual practice in India. And so you have different kinds of things happening in different environments at different places. So migration, diaspora play an important role in which uh, ritual practice then is imp impacted by. Mm. Speaking of particularly about these smileys um, and their you know, ritual spaces, there also used to exist a diversity of spaces before or in parallel with the Jamaat Kana. Can you share more about that? Yeah, so, you know, um, some of my current and previous research looks at the Jamaat Khanna and its evolution over time. So today we, you know, primarily, at least in many countries, it is the Jamaat Khanna is the primary and only space um, for uh, Ismaili practice. Um, but if we look prior to 1923, um, you know, this is sort of a watershed moment sort of the Jamaat Khanna is belonging primarily to uh, Ismailis who trace their origins to the Indian subcontinent um, and its diaspora. Uh, but in Syria, in Iran, in other places, you have other spaces of worship that exist. Um, and so it's important to recognize that the Jamaat Khanna, although we think of it as sort of a pan-Ismaili space, um, was not always the only space that Ismailis uh, uh, chose to or came to for the religious practices. Um, you had other spaces that exist. And there is sufficient evidence to suggest that even in the Indian subcontinent, you had parallel spaces that existed alongside the Jamaat Khanna. So whether they were um, um, tombs or shrines dedicated to the peers, um, whether they were um, other spaces that existed for other devotions, um, you know, there were spaces that that likely coexisted with the Jamaat Khanna um, that had different names and different nomenclatures. And even as late as the 19th century, you see some of these appear in the historical record um, within the subcontinent itself. And so you, um, you know, the, the story of the Jamaat Khanna is obviously a story that goes back several centuries, but in its sort of current um, in its current manifestation as the global Ismaili space, that's a reasonably recent story within sort of Ismaili practice. Um, when I talk to and have researched, you know, uh, Iranian Ismailis, you had spaces known as Khanaga or Khane Kulon um, that existed amongst the communities. When you look at Syria, again, you have other nomenclatures that exist. Um, and so it's important to recognize that Today, while the Jamal Khanna, you know, is the near universal space for Ismaili communities, um, even a century uh, ago, that wasn't the case. 
And then uh, there's also a diversity of practices within the Ismaili community. Could you speak about some of these practices? And for example, if we take a look at something like, you know, the Majalis, uh, the gathering, they've also changed and evolved over time. So could you speak about that? Sure. So I think it's, I think number one, it's important to recognize, of course, that there is this diversity within practice. So today uh, you have uh, a set of canonical prayers that are part of Ismaili practices universally. Um, but many, some of the practices that surround that, whether they're within the Jamaat Khanna space or there are rituals that take place outside of the Jamaat Khanna space within the home, for example, or within family or communal environments may be, may be very different. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's important for us to recognize that many of them emerge from various cultural and communal environments. And so, um, just as the Jamaat Khanna is a re reasonably recent introduction into global Ismaili practice, um, the kinds of rituals that other spaces uh, that Ismaili communities practiced in housed were also different. Um, and so many people, I think, are familiar with funerary rites. And so we know of, um, you know, the Chirage Roshan ceremony um, practiced by uh, communities who trace their origins to uh, what today we might call Badakhshan, so parts of China, parts of Afghanistan and Tajikistan, uh, and parts of northern Pakistan. So this cultural unit that straddles a number of countries today. Um, and those were, were traditionally uh, a ritual that didn't take place within the Jamaat Khanna, it took place outside of the Jamaat Khanna space. Um, and there are many, many, many rituals like this that exist. And, um, you know, many of these, the founding myths or founding stories in which communities can relate to, in the case of Badakhshan, you have a strong, no, a strong sense um, that uh, it was uh, Hakim Nasr Khusro who converted these communities to, or brought Ismailism to these communities. And the rituals that he espoused uh, and his deputies espoused over time were the rituals that became part and parcel of those communities. In the, uh, in the traditions of the subcontinent, including those of the Khojas, the Momins, uh, the Satpanthis, um, you know, the Guptis, you have many different communities that comprise those of the Indian subcontinent. Um, you also had a series of rituals. Uh, and it's likely around sometime around the 19th century that you had uh, a much more um, intricate uh, development of the majlis or gathering of individuals coming together for certain purposes uh, that, that, that emerge. And it's within that context, again, geographically different from place to place, um, that you had variants in many of these majlis, uh, majlis over, emerge over time. Um, and as communities, again, migrate, they take some of those differences with them. And those differences aren't just oceanic in the sense of what you see, for example, of First Mighties who traced origins or who migrated to East Africa are different from those in the subcontinent, even within the subcontinent from various elements, various parts of the draft or different villages. Um, you had differences that exist versus those, for example, the more in larger urban, urban environments. But as communities move, they preserve what is dear to them. Um, and so they preserve those sort of those nuanced elements that exist. And, you know, as I travel from place to place and environment to environment and even collected historical documents, you see significant differences in the ways in which Ismailis observed um, these majalis. They observed uh, their practices of faith. Uh, and, you know, today we think of change within the Ismaili com community is happening globally. But in those days, change happened locally. Um, they were on set because uh, particular individuals were in contact with the imams. Um, local peers may have had influence in the ways in which things were practiced and understood things in particular ways. Um, they recognized 
the different local contexts in which people practice their faith. And so those differences then emerged over time um, as well. And that includes the practice of these majalis that exist within the community as well. I want to talk about trends and changes. Uh, moving forward, do you see any general trends uh, taking place in the Muslim world or even in the, in particular, even in the Ismaili community in terms of spaces and practices? So, you know, I think well, obviously when we, when we talk about the Ismaili community in particular, and we let's start there, we see obviously over the last several decades, the development of the Ismaili Center uh, as an important locus uh, of practice for Ismaili communities in certain parts of the world. Um, it, it is an iteration of the Jamaat Khana that uh, has multiple purposes, um, in addition to simply a space of prayer for the community. Um, the Ismaili Center has a, a prominent outward facing mandate, an ambassadorial mandate, if you, if you will, that speaks to the Ismaili community's more sophisticated engagement with um, the broader societies in which they live. Um, whether that be broader Muslim communities or civic communities in terms of the cities that they're international, national communities. And, you know, the purpose of the Ismaili centers in that way is to create these conversations. Uh, we talked about diversity and conversations are a, a prime example in which diversity comes into play because different viewpoints are brought into question. Um, and so we definitely, I think, have seen that over the last several decades emerge as a, as, as something that's a little bit different with the, uh, with the evolution over time of the Jamaat Khana and, and the role that Jamaat Khana plays in public life. Um, you know, for the Ismaili community, the Jamaat Khana and its practices were something that were considered um, private, um, secret, um, exclusive, and even in some, in some regards uh, for many, many centuries. Um, but the evolution of the Jamaat Khana and, in, and, and into sort of the Ismaili center in certain contexts completely changes that the way in which Ismailis then think about and engage with that space and the way in which others then think about and engage with that space. Um, and so we definitely see that, I think, in certain environments. Of course, it's not, it's not universal. Um, I think we also, uh, you know, COVID has changed the way in which we engage with our Jamaat Khanna spaces as well. Um, you know, the Jamaat Khanna used to be the center of locus. Many members of the community thought especially North America and Europe, think about the Jamaat Khana as the primary site for religious practice. Um, I think people have had to rethink that in interesting ways because of COVID uh, in terms of thinking through how we think about faith uh, in that context. So whether it's praying in the home, um, whether it's engaging with um, technology uh, in different sorts of ways um, in bringing devotion into our lives. Um, so I think those are things that are important for us to, to recognize. In the Muslim world, uh, more broadly, you know, I, I, this homogenizing force, unfortunately, is a very strong force. And I think in certain parts of the world, we will continue to see that force take shape um, in detrimental ways to Muslim communities. Um, and so I think that's something that uh, is something is some Thing that, that's very unfortunate, um, but that where we need voices of change and where we need um, local Muslim communities uh, to uh, speak up a little bit more and to help people understand what this diversity looks like on the ground and that diversity is important. You know, today, if we think of a country like Afghanistan, uh, it's in the media, of course, because of the recent um, governmental change uh, in Afghanistan with the Taliban taking over. Um, and many people, of course, are familiar um, with Afghanistan as a country, especially in the US and Canada and parts of Europe because of uh, military engagement with Afghanistan and peacekeeping engagements with Afghanistan. Um, 
But if you were to ask somebody about, you know, what does Islam look like in Afghanistan? I think most people of those countries would have a very, very difficult time speaking about that. Um, most people don't know about the religious diversity that Afghanistan has in terms of its Sunni uh, majority, in terms of its Hazara and Shia minority, in terms of uh, its Ismaili communities and in terms of other communities that exist within the Afghan um the Afghan national state. And so I think it's, you know, part of it is also recognizing the diversity that, it, that exists. Um, I hope there are more opportunities in coming decades for smaller Muslim communities, communities that haven't had a voice in the past to be able to um, speak to others and other Muslims about their practices. And I think when we look at technology, such as whether it's YouTube or whether it's other forms where you don't necessarily need a lot of money, you don't need a television station to broadcast or to talk about what religion or what faith means to you anymore, um, we will see, I think, an increase in local communities um, speaking to their Islam in meaningful ways. When I first started traveling um, and researching, there wasn't, you know, I'm dating sort of some of my, some of my early travels now, but you didn't really have a established social networks like Facebook in the way that you have them today. You didn't have, um, you know, strong YouTube presence from, from a global population. So today, you know, you can look up pretty much any ritual you want from any Muslim community and find some version of it online. Um, and oftentimes, but not always, these are Muslims choosing to express themselves and demonstrate and show what it means to be religious in meaningful ways. Um, and so I think, you know, that's a change that we will likely see is we'll be much more aware of the diversity I think that exists. Um, and it's going to be us up to us to then have the political and religious will to, to make sense of that diversity uh, and to celebrate it, hopefully, rather than to, um, you know, rather than to demonize it, um, because I think that's something that's that's very, very important. I think also we may need new models in which to think about the Muslim world. We often think about the Muslim world in majority and minority contexts. Um, the majority does this and there are, these are minorities that do this. And there is a, a latent value statement, I think, embedded in that, that the, what the majority does is often right and what the minority does is often less right. Um, and so I think thinking about the Muslim world in different sorts of ways um, will help us um, to better make sense of that diversity as all of this, difference coming to the table with some level of equality rather than sort of there being these asymmetries in the way in which we think about religious practice and religious space. Mm. I think, and I think that brings to me to the last section of your book, it's called Power and Peril of Pluralism. In there you talk about the tendencies of homogenizing spaces, conflating spaces with family, with faith and identity, and just general marginalization of certain groups. There is an interesting reflection Diaga Khan has on the 25th anniversary of the Institute of Ismaili Studies, if I may share it. He says, this message is still potent in the Muslim world today, although it is sometimes clouded, distorted, and deformed by political interests and by struggles for power over the minds and hearts of people. Their attempts of transforming at transforming what are meant to be fluid, progressive, open-ended, intellectually informed and spiritually inspired traditions of thought into hardened, monolithic, absolutist, and obscurantist positions. Yet, there are many across the length and the breadth of the Muslim world today who care for their history and heritage, who are keenly sensitive of the radically altered conditions of the modern world. They are convinced that the idea that there is some sort of inherent, permanent, 
division between the heritage, between their heritage, and the world of today is profoundly a mistaken idea. And that the choice it suggests between an Islamic identity on the one hand, and on the other hand, full participation in the global order of today is a false choice indeed. Their way, they, are, they seek for ways in which their societies may benefit from the intellectual and material fruits of modernity while remaining true to their distinctive moral, spiritual, and cultural heritage. Could you speak about some, I know you spoke about some of your reflections earlier. Could you speak about some of your reflections on this passage? And then do you have any thoughts on perhaps how Muslim communities can better address some of these challenges? perhaps in terms of even solutions? Yeah, so, you know, I think I was very fortunate to have to have been there to hear um, the Aga Khan's words spoken uh, in person um, during the 25th anniversary of the Institute of Ismaili Studies. Um, and I remember those words. Um, and, you know, I, th I think there are a number of things that are brought out there. So number one is, of course, this diversity that exists in all forms amongst Muslims. So whether it be in, in thought, in social practice, um, and then of course we can extend that to, of course, ritual and, and spatial diversity, of course, amongst Muslims as well. Um, you know, I, I think it's also important for us to recognize that um, even though Islam is a religious tradition that has a 1400 plus history, and that, that emerges at a particular point in time, um, that it's important for us and it's important for Muslims to understand and see Islam as something that is fluid, that's something that um, is always in conversation with one's context and environment. Because I think if you see Islam as something that is static, that emerges 1400 years ago, then oftentimes there is a disconnect between the kinds of realities we find ourselves in now um, and what we understand Islam to espouse. And, you know, in, in many ways, these are the tools that communities use to better understand what it means to be faithful today. So whether it's using the, the tools of literalism and metaphorism, for example, you know, I think uh, if you understand certain elements of religious ideas to be literal, then it's very hard oftentimes to engage with the contemporary world because that world is changing. Oftentimes though, uh, and we've seen this even with COVID-19, you, you, you have to, the environment necessitates some kind of change. And in those, in those contexts, you then look to religion for solace, for comfort, for inspiration. And that's in many ways, I think a better way to think about religion is to say, what's happening in my life? What's happening in my world? What's happening in my environment? And where can I find that sense of inspiration or solace or succor or comfort um, to be able to, to handle this? That's a very different tool or technique by, than saying, hey, let me read this piece of text. This is what it says. Now, how do I apply this as is to what the world is today? And I think for many of us, it's important to recognize that that world is changing. You know, we saw it very clearly, even with the Hajj pilgrimage in Saudi Arabia during COVID-19, there were significant changes that had to be made to an age-old ritual, um, whether it was in terms of spacing, in terms of who could come, um, you know, whether it was having a vaccine passport, there was a whole series of different things, even restricting the Hajj um, to non-Saudi citizens for, uh, for, for the season. And so I think, uh, you know, it's important for us to recognize that, that that diversity is something that's not just important for 
the success and survival of the ummah in a meaningful way, but it's important for um, our own individual success um, that we that religion is not something that's just communal. Religion is something that's also very, very personal. Um, and the more we see that personal engagement with religion in a meaningful way, I think the more likely we are to also recognize that communal engagement in a meaningful way as well. Um, and I think that's something that's important. You know, the other thing is that we often see, when we talk about power, we see these asymmetries that exist. So, you know, oftentimes the birthplace of Islam, we look at the Arabian uh, Peninsula, is somehow seen as having more power and more voice over the shape that Islam takes than everybody else. And yet we know when we look at numerically, um, you know, we look at the Arabian Peninsula, that's a minority. We're talking about, again, power relationships. That's a minority of the Muslim world. But because of the economic power, because of the power that we actually give to a particular geography, a particular interpretation of Islam, it means that we somehow dampen and lessen the interpretation that we may give to others or we may even give to ourselves. And so this lack of confidence, this lack of ability to to articulate a series of values that are germane to particular interpretations of Islam somehow then falters. And I think that's the challenge that many of us have. We don't have the confidence, the ability, or the even the words to be able to articulate why and how the Islam that I practice may be just as important. Um, and oftentimes we depict it in the, in the form of value or we depict it in, in a religious context um, that may dampen dampen that. And so I think number one is, is in recognizing the president and the role that personal faith has um, in the way we engage with faith at a personal level allows us to think about communal faith in different sorts of ways. And I think that also, you know, recognizing that diversity isn't sort of just one block against another block. It's not just about Sunni versus Shia or not just about literalists versus mystics or just about, um, you know, one group versus another, but that diversity actually is, uh, you know, all of these points that simultaneously emerge and all that, that all of them are voices that represent Islam in meaningful ways, um, allows much more of a tapestry to emerge rather than these sort of two blocks that are always at odds with each other. Um, and we've seen that, we've seen that historically within the Muslim world, um, that the Islam that emerges in North Africa has particular characteristics that's different than the Islam that emerges in the subcontinent or in China. Um, and each of these are, you know, engage with and allow, because of the value system that Islam emerges, to encourage intellectual engagement, philosophical engagement, religious engagement, that sometimes differs from one another, but still at its base has that common root. Um, and it's that common root that binds all Muslims together, regardless of the diversity that exists amongst them. Um, but yet that diversity is the flower that emerges from those roots that are planted. And as we know, uh, a, a rose and a daffodil or a tulip and a, a hydranium all have their beauty within them, even though they look different. Um, at, the, at the root of them is that seed um, that when planted and, and nourished, uh, allows those plants to blossom in meaningful ways. Um, and that's in many ways how we should be thinking about the Muslim world is about the blossoms um, and about what each brings to our joy, our life, our happiness. Um, not just that they're different, um, but that each allows us to think about and engage with those forms of Islam um, in beautiful ways. 
I think that was beautifully said, Rizwan. At the end of your book, you mentioned the book would not be possible without the thousands of Muslims who opened their homes and hearts to me. They believed that it was important, if not essential, for their visions and Islam to, of Islam to be captured. I want to hear a bit about your journey. Could you speak about your travels and some personal highlights? Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to summarize all of it. There was, you know, all together for this project, uh, you know, there was almost uh, 20 countries that were visited in various places uh, to engage uh, in a project to try and collect, collect this. And I think, you know, for me, um, I tried to, as a researcher, come to the field with an open mind. And so I didn't, I tried not to have set ways of what Islam was in my head as a template. I tried to sort of understand what was happening on the ground. So this meant meeting people of all backgrounds, people of all communities, um, and not just communities that were like-minded or thought about diversity in ways that I thought about diversity, but I was also curious to, to meet communities and members who thought about Islam in very particular kinds of ways. And so it meant meeting Muslims of all backgrounds. Um, and for me, it was also about gaining trust, um, having Muslims open their lives to me where possible, praying with them, um, talking with them, trying to understand their viewpoints from in their own words. And, you know, the book in many ways is a big uh, responsibility because many Muslims have shared their stories with me, um, have shared their lives with me, have shared their practices with me. Um, and in some cases, this was the first time that communities did this with outsiders. Um, and so it was a blessing in many ways to have been invited into the homes and the lives of many individual Muslims and Muslim communities. And so I'm very um, gracious for that experience, that set of experiences and for people trusting me with that. But I, I also realized that Muslims wanted to tell their stories. They just didn't necessarily know how or have the forums to do so. Um, and so it was in that encounter, we talked about encounters a couple of times in this interview, but it was in those encounters with those individuals that uh, oftentimes that sharing happened. And that sharing, again, I was very conscious about asymmetries and relationships. And so I made sure that it wasn't just me that was, you know, it wasn't just me that was interested in their lives. They were equally interested in my life, who I was as a Muslim, what I, what I, how I practiced my faith, what this meant. And so where possible, I also opened my life to them as much as possible, shared with them who I was, what I thought of Islam to be, how I practiced my faith. This was important because it meant that we then allowed trust to grow and to flourish between us. Um, but without these particular individuals who opened their lives to me, in some cases took risks in sharing their practices and faith with me, this book would not have been possible. And so even though my name is kind of stamped on the cover, this is really sort of a, an effort by many Muslims around the world, uh, individuals and communities who opened their doors and their hearts uh, to me and allowed me to uh, see into their lives uh, through the windows they shared with me. Um, and it's because of that, I was able to um, weave these stories together um, to better understand what the diversity looks like, not just conceptually, but also in practice, um, but also to even from a conceptual and bodily level to, to understand what practice feels like in different contexts and different communities um, that are different from my own. Um, and so that was really, really enriching in many, many ways. And so without the generosity of others, this book would, would not have been possible. Um, and I would not have been able to capture the stories that I was able to capture uh, in ways. And, um, you know, this book is really, although it focuses, of course, on practice, 
and spatial diversity, um, it's really a weaving together of different contexts and stories of the lives of hundreds, if not thousands of Muslims who came together to talk to me uh, and shared with me their lives and their stories. Speaking about personal experiences, as a scholar, as a person of faith, is there something you are still searching for a satisfying answer to and for uh, which you would welcome other perspectives? There's lots, of course. I mean, I think the the the, the stance of a, a researcher should always be one of, of openness, I think. And, you know, the countries, this project started with one country and then it moved to four and then it moved to a larger context. And I realized um, that even though, you know, the, the, the 17 or so countries I visited for the project um, gives me a good sense of diversity, there are so many more cultures and communities I feel that um, were absent from this uh, from this study. Many, of course, are not even included in the book because of um, the the format and the audience that this book was meant for. Um, but you know, for me, that diversity looked different from country to country, community to community, and environment to environment. Even the last country I visited formally for this project, Senegal, um, was a complete shock to me in certain ways because I had never thought about. Islam in the way that it was articulated and practiced and expressed in the Senegalese context. And so I felt that even at country 17, uh, in many ways, I was still sort of a, a neophyte in trying to understand the diversity on the ground in Muslim communities. And I was constantly learning um, and trying to make sense of what this looks like. And so for me, you know, coming up with models of diversity of understanding the Muslim world is, is always an incomplete project. Uh, because there's always so much more to see and to do and to understand. Um, and so, you know, despite um, the privilege that I've had to be able to work with so many Muslim communities over so many countries, over so many years, um, I still feel that I'm a student in many ways trying to make sense of, of, of diversity on the ground in terms of at least of religious practice. But I hope that... Um, you know, this study in this book makes at least some contribution to the field and helping us to think about diversity in different sorts of ways. Um, and for me, at a, at a more kind of faith-based level, you know, practice practicing Islam in different ways, in different spaces, also opened me up to thinking about faith, um, our relationship with the divine in different sorts of ways. Different communities all provide different windows um, for thinking about what it means to be faithful. And so for me, um, even stepping out of your own communal context of what practice looks like and thinking about practice in different ways um, is sometimes an uncomfortable, but always an opening experience. Um, and so for me, that was really, really important too, to practice with other communities because it meant that at least I got some glimpse of what faith looked like and practice looked like at a not, not just at a descriptive communal level, but also at a very personal level. Um, and, you know, it's hard not to be feel moved uh, within certain spaces and among certain communities because of the ways in which they uh, articulate and, uh, and practice um, their faith. And so that's something that will always stay with me as well. Um, Thank you for sharing. The last thing I want to ask is about the future and specifically if you have a vision for the future of the world, what would be a vision that you would have the world can achieve in perhaps 25 years? And then any insights or suggestions you would give to help achieve this vision? So I mean, it's always nice to be aspirational. It, it, you know, it would be nice if 
you know, you know, sort of in a blue sky kind of moment if we were lived in a world in which at least some of this diversity was kind of recognized, um, in which Muslims, regardless of the way they practice their faith, were accepted and tolerated. Um, you know, we see this to some extent within uh, within the global north, within Europe, uh, within North America. Um, but we often find that these some of these homogenizing forces that exist in historically predominant Muslim countries like Indonesia, maybe in places like Senegal, um, uh, are beginning to change. And so, uh, you know, it would be it would if there are currents in the world that allow people to preserve, maintain, and practice their faith freely, that would be obviously an ideal world that we could live in. But increasingly, as we globalize, I think we are going to come more into more and more into contact with the ways in which others practice their faith. And I think there will be moments in time, and hopefully these moments will be moments of positivity rather than moments of destruction, in which we recognize that the diversity that exists, not just as objectified and orientalist in the sense of, hey, this is really cool that people practice their faith this way, but more so that people recognize these as valid ways to approach faith and practice, um, and people learn from them, and people not just not just look at the practice themselves, but understand what that practice reveals to us about a community, about a, uh, a country, about uh, the values that Islam espouses uh, is important. Now, how we get there is hard to tell um, because this world is constantly changing. Uh, and we, every time I feel that we make strides uh, in certain movements, we oftentimes, those strides are countered with negative, negative movements as well. Um, but I think it's important for Muslims themselves to be resolute, um, to not be afraid um, to share the ways in which they understand and practice their faith. Um, and to to hold strong to some of these forces that are more homogenizing. And by hold strong here, I mean, um, you know, to recognize that they have a historical tradition of faith that is also legitimized, that is also important, that also has validity. Um, and I think that's something that each individual person has to be able to find the confidence to be able to do. Um, and I think, you know, reading about our faith, reading a little bit more about what it means um, to be part of a community uh, are important steps in being able to do that because I think oftentimes some level of confidence can come from that in our ability to, to be able to do so. Um, but it, it is a long journey and you know we, we see setbacks along the way, um, but I think there is a point in time where uh, at least in certain contexts that diversity can be celebrated in a meaningful way um, rather than demonized. And I think um, that's important. Rizwan, this has been uh, such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sahil. Thank you for listening to today's episode with Candid Insights. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe or follow us on social media for updates on future episodes. If you've already subscribed, please leave us a rating or review. It does help new people find the podcast. I'm Sahil Badruddin, your host. And for a transcript of this interview and others, visit my website at sahilbadruddin.com.